So hello everyone and welcome to the ECR podcast. The ECR group represents the European Conservatives and Reformists in the European Parliament here in Brussels. I'm Christina Rasmussen from Denmark and I have here next to me as usual my two colleagues Otto Joto from Finland. Hello. Hi and Carlos Bomatis from Latvia. Hello. Hi. So today we would like to welcome our guest, British member of the ECR group Mr. Andrew Lure. How Hello. are you doing? Hi, very well, thanks. Good to be here. A big welcome to you and thank you very much for taking your time to be here today. It's a pleasure, thanks. Mr. Lua uh, represents the British Conservatives of the East Midlands in Britain. Here in the European Parliament, he sits in the Committee on Culture and Education and Regional Development Committee. Mr. Lua is also the chairman of the ECR Policy Group on Subsidiarity and Localism, which means that he's working towards improving the influence and sovereignty of nation-states in the EU. Today we'll talk with Andrew Lure about British culture and education and how he sees these two sectors developing in the future. Not only both about the British, right? No, yeah. both in and outside of the UK, yeah, of course. So before we start, let me add that the views and ideas expressed here represent the view of our guests and are not necessarily the views and ideas of the ECR group. So let's get started. And also, Carl, I'll give the word to you. Mr. Lure, thank you very much for joining our show. Uh, and um, let me open up with uh, with a starting question. How come these two aspects, these two important aspects, culture and education, go, uh, as far as European Parliament is concerned, go together, hand in hand, not separately? Well, I think they do connect reasonably well together. Inevitably, when you are uh, dividing up subject areas into committees, you, you, you end up with some slight uh, crossovers um, and some slight question marks. Um, but I mean, certainly from my previous background uh, in, in politics, in local government, the two of them have tended to go well together. Um, I've been a university governor for many years now, governor of the University of Derby since 2009, and when I was uh, leader of the Derbyshire County Council, I was my own cabinet member for culture. So I, I say that not just to illustrate how it suits me and my particular um, personal interest that the two committees are, get, uh, are together, but also just how those two subject areas go together. Culture um, informs education, education informs culture. Um, the other one that comes in and out sometimes with these is, is tourism, where, for instance, I moved the tourism department into the culture uh, directorate when I was a county council leader. But again, that was a combination of it being a sensible fit there and having some, some time and some uh, expertise to be able to devote to it in terms of the department. But also it reflected my personal interest that, that tourism and the visitor economy is also a big interest of mine. And I'm always feeling that that people come for cultural experiences in tourism quite often and therefore making sure that your cultural output... It, reflects the interests of the culture of the community that you represent but also is it, it has an eye on what what is attractive to people who are coming to visit the area as well and if you're talking about um especially british culture and, and education uh, whenever i'm doing uh, research in the very top universities of the world they're almost always either british or american so my question is is there something specific in Anglo-Saxon culture which produces great conditions for top universities? I think there is a, a, a very strong uh, open debating society culture which I'm quite keen uh, to defend 
uh, which contributes towards those uh, universities. Also, I think the unbroken history of the university sector that hasn't had the uh, the fractures of uh, particularly the Second World War, communist occupation, communist governments and so on, breaking up that sort of thread of free thought and debate in the university sector. Uh, so in a sense, the history has inf- helped inform the structure. And it's, it came as quite a surprise to me when... Um, I started in the European Parliament looking into university sectors in other EU member states, how particularly in the East, but also in other parts of of the EU, how many of them are still very state-regulated organisations to the extent that when the uh, Juncker plan was announced, universities complained. And I thought that, that they were complaining just because they weren't going to get a grant but actually had to do finance and loans and so on. But it turned out to be even more of a problem than that that because of their state-owned and regulated structure they weren't allowed to participate in borrowing money rather than just being given it um, or indeed in uh, standalone companies or spin-offs or the sort of ventures that British and American universities get involved in and and this is really why one of my main objectives in in the, uh, the halfway point in my mandate with Brexit in mind is to ensure that the university sector disappointed and dismayed by Brexit as it was in a bit of a display of groupthink I have to say which rather slightly goes against what I was saying about the free flow of ideas in British universities they're as inclined to groupthink uh, as any other sector is that they still have access to the EU but the EU actually still has access to the UK because what you say there is absolutely right it isn't just that the UK university sector is operating at a high level in terms of international comparatives, it's actually way, way above even places that you would think would be very comparable, like the Dutch or the Germans or the Swedes. By the way, how do you see a Brexit uh, impact on the educational system in UK? Well, uh, again, I mean, uh, uh, across the piece, on a broader scale, I don't think it will be fundamentally affected. What about the migration aspects on the education? I don't know how it is in in UK, but we know that in the United States, uh, half of um, PhD candidates are migrants. Well, indeed, and yet the United States has a reputation of having the tightest immigration system of any country in the Western world, so it's not necessarily been been affected by it in the way that that some people uh, would suggest. They have this genius visa, right? They do, exactly. (laughs) And you're, you're exactly right that where there's talent, where there's skill, where there's uh, a perceived demand, then accommodations will be made. But the problem is that now they are leaving back to India or to China. I think that's overplayed, and I think that's just very short-term turbulence. So I don't think on the wider scale there'll be big changes. But obviously we have debates which I'm involved in about things like Horizon 2020, about things like Erasmus+. Uh, it's fairly clear to me that things like the big things like the single market, the regional development budgets, the agricultural budgets are not going to be something that Britain's part of in the future. There'll be access to the single market rather than participation in the single market. But there are a few things, and Horizon 2020 and Erasmus Plus are examples of them, where there is so much mutual benefit for the UK and the EU that this isn't some sort of cherry-picking or, or four freedoms and all this sort of stuff that, 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 that the federalists trot out all the time. This is somebody being able to take a cool, hard look at this and say, for instance, with Erasmus, well, 
more than twice as many students from the EU come to the UK on Erasmus than come from the UK into the EU. So this isn't Britain offering, you know, this isn't Britain Britain begging for favours from the EU. This is a system where if people are sensible and level-headed, continued participation can have benefits all round. And for those who say, ah, yes, but you've got to have freedom of movement to be in Erasmus. Well, you don't. It says so on a piece of paper, but Romania and Hungary were in Erasmus for many years without freedom of movement. So one doesn't necessarily follow the other. There isn't a template for something as big as Brexit, so we all have to be a bit more creative about it. This reminds me, Otto, you had a great point on uh, uh, rigid social classes in terms of education, especially in UK. Can, can you elaborate it? And, and uh, Social class in the UK, I guess we were talking about because uh, Britain is often viewed as a, as a class society. From my point of view, it's very different from continental Europe in the sense that every class has their own kind of unique pride identity. That they uh, don't necessarily want to get out of. Yeah, it's it's not like you're kind of proud to be on a social class. You you're are. You're proud to be working hero, working class hero. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, there, there's a bit of that. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's propagated. Does it affect education, though? No, well... I think I think where it affects education is that there's sometimes insufficient pressure to ensure everyone has the ability to 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 get along. However, there are, there is forty percent of, of of young people in Britain are going to university now. Um, we've had a stream of prime ministers and political leaders at the highest level who've come from unbelievably humble backgrounds. I mean, Mrs. Thatcher is the classic example. John Major as well, though. There, there, there are lots of there are lots of others. Um, I think social class is. is this more was before automation period, though. No? Well, I think I think it's more sort of something people find entertaining or a subject of of of, uh, of 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 cultural discourse rather than being any more solid in the UK than it is anywhere else. I mean, the United States particularly prides itself on being the ultimately. Uh, fluid society. Yet you've had a, you've now got a billionaire who inherited uh, most of his money uh, as the president of the United States, and before that, you you'd got uh, two families who, between them, were either presidential or vice presidential candidates for virtually a third of a century. Um, the ability of people from humble backgrounds in the United States to get to university is actually considerably less than it is. Uh, in the UK. But I do accept that there are other societies, and I suppose Finland is is a often cited example, where Finland, it always seems to me, does have a really rigid class structure in that you've only got one, and everybody's in it. We kind of started us all being labour class in the 1900s, early, with a very small elite, so I guess we didn't, we don't have the same historical time to kind of uh, develop like identities in, in that same same sense. Whereas in yeah. post-Soviet countries, yeah. as in Latvia, where I come from, uh, in you know, in 1990, when Soviet Union collapsed, then everyone was on the same step. And you just had like two, three, four, five years to acquire as much capital as you could, legally or illegally. Mm. Yes. And it's not only about money, it's, 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 it's as, as well about capital of, of, of knowledge. So, yeah. yeah. But like the the social movability is actually like slowing down considerably. Like we have had for universities, but apparently it seems to be uh, something you inherit from your parents. So the system itself doesn't really 
secure like social mobility in even in Finland, which should be on paper quite egalitarian. I also think though that people with similar backgrounds and similar career structures seem to be meeting one another more and mixing with other people less, which is creating less fluidity in in uh, social structures uh, as well. Uh, I mean, all I think you can do is provide as much equality of opportunity rather than equality in the more left-wing sense of the word, equality of opportunity for people so that if they do want to take on uh, this uh, this change in in life, this change of career, this change of of, um, of of social status, it's available, and that's also my belief, which also distinguishes me from the left um, when it comes to men and women as well. I'm not a great believer in quotas and 50% of people must do this and 50% of people must do that. That 50% of primary school teachers must be men and 50% of fighter pilots must be women. Uh, it's the equality of opportunity. If there is a woman who wants to be a fighter pilot, then the ability for them to do so should be there. If there's a man who wants to be a primary school teacher, uh, I mean, my son's school, for instance, is entirely typical in the UK in having no male teachers in it whatsoever at a primary level. But if a man wants to do that, then he should be able to do. But it's about the equality of the opportunity, not the equality of outcome in terms of 50-50 for everything. Mm. You mentioned quotas, which means that we have to go to our next topic. Our show is only like 40 minutes long and we have already been talking for 30 minutes. We, we were hoping that we would tackle the uh, educational thing for 10 minutes and then, let, and then we'd go to, to culture, for example. So let's go to culture. Um, it is broadly understood that education is more like um, a borderless body, whereas a culture, especially European culture, is... Um, Uh, I would say n not. Uh, countries can, um, for example, protect their own nation culture by setting quotas. Uh, let's say qu um, how many French songs um, uh, on an hourly basis you can play on the radio. Uh, it seems to me that the same goes with, with French cinema uh, in Belgium as well. Uh, what is your take on this? Can we protect or preserve our culture with a decent degree of protectionism? Uh No, I actually think that uh, you protect your culture by producing stuff that's good. And uh, if you receive a guaranteed state subsidy for something, no matter how rubbish it is, then that's not a particular incentive to produce high-quality cultural products. Um, most of, most of the, the, the great works uh, from any culture have not come about because the government's paid people to do them. And your example of the Soviet Union uh, is, is, is telling there that I'd suggest that uh, most of the most of the artworks that were produced in the Soviet era were by state-subsidized, uh, uh, officially-approved painters are not necessarily of the highest quality. Um, so I'm, I'm not in favor of quotas, but I'm sensitive about it because I have other colleagues in the ECR from other countries with, with less of this sort of dominant English language culture right. that the United Kingdom has that says, well, yes, it's all very well for you to say that, but we're under different sets of cultural pressures and they should be respected. Well, I think cultures should be respected, but I think I have enough belief in the inherent interest of people in their own culture to believe that they will take an interest in that, that they will gather together and take it upon themselves to protect that culture rather than it have to be something that's imposed by some sort of percentage system from either a state or even worse, uh, a super state. 
do you believe that the very reason why the English language is so prominent and widespread is actually the very culture itself? Because I, I remember when I was a little kid, my dad was listening Beatles, not because it was in English, but because it was such a great band. And I, I can kind of see that all over the world, people kind of adapting English language because they want to consume the cultural products that the British and Americans are, are producing. Yes. I mean, it's it's a difficult chicken and egg sort of question, that one, actually. Um, but, you know, it is undoubtedly the case that, I mean, if you look at look at a, a band like like, uh, like ABBA, for instance, you know, um, ABBA made great, great songs, great tunes. Would they have been a, a, a huge global success if all those songs had been in Swedish? Probably not. Probably not. Um, so that's why I'm a little bit more sensitive about this than, than I would be in my usual sort of pure free market way. But I do worry that even allowing that slight concession leads people who are my colleagues on the culture committee say, ah, yes, and that's why culture is completely different and we must push out all market influences and just simply give people uh, uh, subsidies to produce uh, whatever they want because it's usually not all that good. And if it's being produced to order by the state, well, again, I only have to look to the history of Eastern Europe to see that sort of state-dictated culture is not usually uh, the best. Oh, we could talk a lot about Soviet Union, though, but <laughs> our, t- <laughs> our time is running out. And uh, maybe last question from my side. Uh, what are the next plans during the next two and a half years here in the European Parliament, a part of awaiting Brexit, of course? Yeah. Yeah, well, that that's a good question, one I get asked a lot. I mean, it's been very interesting to me that demand for my speaking services in the United Kingdom is at an all-time high now compared to uh, before. I mean, this started when, you know, Cameron clicked the stopwatch on the referendum that suddenly MEPs became interesting people who people wanted to hear from. So thank you for joining our show. Well, quite, <laughs> exactly. It's, 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 it's my pleasure, although uh, I, I'm sure I may have been able to get this gig whether we'd had the uh, referendum or not. Um, but... Uh, that, to me, illustrated the essential problem the United Kingdom had with the EU, that many in our political classes uh, took the view that if you were interested in the EU, that meant that you approved of everything that the EU does. And that's why it's been fascinating for me to meet colleagues, particularly from Denmark and Finland, where there is a strong seam of Euroscepticism but it's a seam of Euroscepticism which is a much better informed seam where people understand the council, the commission and the parliament. Not everybody, of course, but generally speaking, people in Denmark and Finland and elsewhere are better informed about what the EU is and does. And that doesn't translate to them then approving of it. And the problem in the UK is that concepts like European citizenship weren't ever used or mentioned at all by anyone except sort of people on the right in politics who didn't like them like me and then suddenly we discovered that we had become European citizens based on a treaty that was signed in Lisbon that no one had ever heard of and we're so not good at the EU and therefore would never get the best out of it that that I drew the very unfortunate conclusion that 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 it that it just isn't for us but my worry is that although the official government line is we wish the EU well and we hope it will be a success we perhaps do hope it will be a success, but my analysis of the way it's structured, its inability to reform, 
uh, its inability to respond to external pressures and new realities means that I fear it probably won't succeed. And therefore, I feel for this generation, people who are 18 now are going through the same process that I went through when I was 18, because I was 18 in 1989, when all of my life certainties and geopolitical realities suddenly disappeared in the space of three or four months as well. And that is, I think, what this generation is going to face, that things they've always assumed are going to be there are always going to be the same, are their sort of fixed points in the world aren't going to be. And that's either incredibly exciting or incredibly frightening or indeed possibly uh, a bit of both. So what will you wish for an 18-year-old man um, or woman that are now thinking of, of well, education? Well, I mean, I, I obviously... I obviously wish them well. I mean, I was, I was a little bit uh, perturbed. My old school has an annual speech day where everyone gets their certificates and so on. It's a, it's a well, Otto, it's the, it's the most stereotypically English event you could possibly imagine, actually. <laughs> but it's a good one. I get, get to go every year. And uh, we had a, a politician, political writer, who cast this cloud of doom over all the uh, 18-year-olds present by saying, yes, you know, uh, my generation had it the best and you're in for uncertainty and and bad times and it's all going to be awful and don't make kids uh, yeah i mean I, i don't think that's true or else i wouldn't have had a you know i've got a five-year-old myself um but i do think that what looks certain and what has looked certain as as much as it did in 1989 won't be and i i can see circumstances in which the rigid inflexibility of the eu does lead to it breaking rather than bending And whilst 2016 has been a hugely traumatic year for Britain particularly, but geopolitically, uh, I think 2017 has all the makings of being at least as traumatic, if not more so. And that's an opportunity for some, but it's a very uncertain and worrying time for others, which I, I understand entirely. Well, thanks, thanks a lot, Andrew Lure. Um I just have one last question before we wrap up the conversation. Um, why did you go to Cram Cambridge University and not Oxford? Because ah. I know there's this kind of rivalry going oh, on. Right. The, yeah, yes. <laughs> so oh, right. I really wanted to ask you. I actually had a bet with my best friend that whenever one of us meets someone uh, who has uh, gone to uh, Cambridge, we definitely have to ask him, so why didn't you go to, why didn't you get to Cambridge, <laughs> to Oxford? Is Cambridge better than Cambridge and Oxford do have this huge rivalry. Um, I have to say my Cambridge experience was quite different than most people because I went to Newcastle as an undergraduate and then I went to Cambridge as a as a graduate, uh, which didn't work out as well, actually, because the college system, which enables people to get to know one another and be in sort of slightly closer and cosier communities as undergraduates, means that you're all spread out and diffuse as graduates, so it's it's less good. So why did I go to Cambridge? Well, because my two favourite professors at Newcastle who um, meant a lot to me and I used to love attending their lectures um, both really wanted me to go uh, to Cambridge and also uh, this won't sound too terribly edifying but when when I was uh, when I was doing my A levels when I was 18 um, Oxford University told me that they didn't think I'd get the grades to get in and therefore didn't make me an offer uh, and I did mm. but I still <laughs> yeah. didn't go uh, okay. and as a result of that I thought well if I am going to go to Oxford or Cambridge then I'll go to the one that uh, you know 
didn't do that to me when I was <laughs> yeah, an 18 of year old. <laughs> and it's more beautiful anyway. Yeah, it is. It is a very, very attractive uh, city. Uh, when it comes to fondness of university memories, it is the University of Newcastle-Plontine that I remain more attached to. And it's that together with my school, Queen Elizabeth's Grammar School, in the beautiful small market town of Ashbourne in Derbyshire, uh, which was founded in 1585. So my school is sort of Oxford and Cambridge College sort of age. It's a state school, but it's, you know, it's run on, on very traditional lines, very successfully. It's those two places, more than Cambridge, that I actually feel were formative for me and which I have the happiest memories of. Great. Thanks a lot, Andrew Lure, for coming here today and sharing your interesting inputs thank on you. culture and education. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you to all our listeners out there and uh, please stay with us for our future podcasts.